Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. You know, it makes me happy and feel loved when busy people agree to come on my show. It also makes me feel loved and very happy when people like you listen. So thank you for tuning in today. I hope you've had a good day, and I'm very happy to be inviting back to the program Dr. Leighton Flowers. He is was named the Director of Evangelism and Apologetics for the Texas Baptists in 2018. Also loves to travel to churches of all sizes and conduct training on evangelism and apologetics. He's got a brilliant mind. You can learn more about him at Soteriology 101. Soteriology 101. We're going to talk today uh, about the words of Jesus as we continue our Red Word series, which is a series I really, really like. And I've heard a lot a lot from uh, you that have said you like you like it too. So it's a, it's a good thing. We're going to talk today about Matthew 22. So if you have your Bibles open, uh, great. Grab a pen and a piece of paper, and we'll get uh, we'll get into our study. Leighton, welcome. Thank you, Bill. Great to be here. Oh, it's awfully nice that you were able to come on the show today. I'm very excited to, to go into Matthew 22. This is a powerful passage, and I know we're going to have a good time studying it today. Absolutely. Look forward to it. Yeah. So how do you want to divide this up? Should we read a little bit? Would you want to take it in small chunks, or what do you want to do? Sure, we can read the entire parable uh, if you'd like. Uh, there, verses one through fourteen. Uh, it's a it's a well known passage because of its kind of concluding remarks. For the many are invited, but the few are chosen or elect. Yes. And uh, for those who have, have been listening to your program for some time and know that when I come on, typically I do talk about predestination, election, sociology, because that's been uh, my my field of study. Uh, when I did my doctoral work at New Orleans, that's what I wrote on. And so I, I talk a lot about what God means by election and predestination. And this passage, I think, gives us a really good insight, at least from Jesus' perspective, uh, about what uh, a biblical election really is all about. Mm-hmm. All right. So do you want to read or do you want me to read? Sure, I'll read it. It says this, awesome. Jesus spoke to them. Uh, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had, who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, fatted cattle. I have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out to the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came 
to see the guest, he noticed that a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. And that is a well-known parable. Many of you who are churchgoers, I'm sure, have heard uh, that parable before. But I think some people misapply the meaning of the parable or misunderstand its intentions. Uh, And they oftentimes focus upon just that last choice. The many are invited, but the few are chosen. And everyone Mm -hmm. wants to focus upon that 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 point there at the end, the, the few who are elect, when the truth of the matter is, there's really four choices, Bill, that are reflected in this particular parable. Because sometimes when we think and we hear the word election, we think in the singular, we think just there's one major choice, and that is God's choice of those who will be saved, uh, especially from the more Calvinistic side of this, uh, you know, this discussion, mm-hmm. many of them really focus, maybe even hyper-focus on that word elect, and they neglect the other choices that God uh, makes that are reflected here in this parable. And so I, I just thought we'd kind of walk through that with our listeners and kind of talk through the different choices of God here in this uh, in this parable. I, I would love to do that. Can I ask a burning question I've had about this for uh, all week? Oh, please do. To get things started. When it said that, uh, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And the question I have, Leighton, is did he have wedding clothes and just refuse to wear them? Well, I, I guess that would depend upon what you think Jesus is meaning uh, with reflection to what the wedding co- clothes represent. Um, okay. And I, I believe that the wedding clothes represent being clothed in the righteousness of Christ through faith. Uh, okay. I think there are passages out of Hebrews and several other passages which give us indication that that's what Jesus is most likely uh, reflecting upon. And so when people, um, you know, like in Matthew chapter 7, say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and perform many miracles? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. He is reflecting upon a group of people who may show up in a sense um, may come uh, in in response to the uh, the call to, uh, to to be saved, but not really come into with faith in, in Christ. May come for alternative reasons or um, uh, selfish motivations, um, and we pro- probably all know of someone who's coming part of part of the church for a short amount of time, or maybe even a long time who were there for the wrong motivations, maybe people who are there trying to get money from the church or uh, just there for a, a social club kind of an event, but weren't really there because they believed and trusted in Christ. And so um, my view is that more than likely he's reflecting upon those who may come in response to the invitation, but not in faith and thus not, not clothed in the proper wedding garments. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Appreciate that answer. Dr. Leighton Flowers is my guest. All right, Leighton, let's start uh, going through these four different kinds of invitations. Yeah, the the four choices of God, instead of thinking of election just as, yeah, yeah, instead of thinking of it as just one election, like God electing people, you know, certain individuals before the foundation of the world to be saved, which is the, the, the way in which oftentimes the more Reformed or Calvinistic view interprets election. I think instead, uh, reflecting on all the choices of God, first, 
the first election or choice of God is the choice of the nation through whom the word would come. And so this is obviously a reflection of the nation of Israel, because if you notice here in this parable, the king has a kingdom, and that's reflective upon the Israelite nation. Now, the Israelites weren't chosen, as Deuteronomy teaches us, because they were a great nation or impressive or because they were more worthy than some other nation. They were chosen even as a small, insignificant people, um, and they were chosen for a noble purpose. In other words, they weren't chosen to the neglect of all the other nations of the world. They were chosen to be a blessing to all the other nations of the world. So the biblical doctrine of election starts with God's choice of the nation of Israel. In fact, we see this in Genesis chapter 12 when he says to Abraham that through you all the nations uh, or all the families of the earth will be blessed. And of course, we know how that uh, comes to fruition through Christ because Christ comes through the nation of Israel. The word of God comes to the nation of Israel, and therefore the world is redeemed. All the nations of the world are redeemed through the nation of Israel. And so that first choice is reflected in the kingdom that the king is ruling. And what he does there is he sends his gospel, his invitation, the good news of his son's wedding, to his own people first. And so this would be obviously reflective of what we see in Romans 1.16, for example, when it says that the gospel is the power of God into salvation, um, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And so the gospel is sent first to his own nation, to the Jewish mm -hmm. people. And generally speaking, just like this parable reflects, the Jewish people uh, didn't treat the invitation very well. Uh, in other words, they would stone the messengers. They, they, they refused to listen. They were either apathetic or aggressive against the message of, of the wedding banquet, the good news. And so the, the choice of the father then was to say, okay, well, I'm going to send it first to the Jew, but when the Jew re rejects it for the most part, I'm going to send that message to the highways and the byways, to the good and the bad alike. So notice there that he's not sending it to moral people, like people who are more moral than other people. He's, send, he's sending the, the invitation indiscriminately to all nations. So whether Jew, Greek, whatever, male, female, slave, free, whatever, he's saying, go send this to anyone who's willing to come. And that's a choice of God. He doesn't have to do that. He's not obligated to send his invitation uh, to anyone else. Uh, he chooses graciously to send his invitation out to the nations of the world, which is a part of his his plan. And so that's a choice of God to, to whom he will send uh, his message. And he sends it to uh, to the highways and the byways, to the good and the bad alike. And so that reflects really the second choice of God, uh, the, 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 the recipients of, of that message, that good news, the invitation to come to the wedding banquet. Well, the third choice of God is the choice um, of those to whom that message would be sent, but not only the message who would be sent, but who would, who would send it. And in other words, who would carry that message? And so, in other words, G God picks servants. Like, for example, Jonah would be a servant of God that was chosen to take the message to the Ninevites. Paul, an apostle, was chosen by God to take the message to the Gentiles. And so we see throughout Scripture prophets and apostles chosen by God to take this message first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And so those are three choices of God already that have nothing to do really with individuals' soteriology, the individuals being elected to salvation. All of these have to do with the many are called. This is the calling of God that he's going to choose his nation through whom the message would come and the gospel would be uh, fulfilled through Christ, through the nation of Israel. 
the choice of those messengers from Israel, like Paul and the other apostles and the prophets, uh, and the choice to whom that message would go, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And so those are three different elections, if you will, choices of God that have nothing to do with soteriology. And before we get to the last one, I, I think it's really important to note here that a lot of people take texts of Scripture that are talking about those three choices, and they apply them to their soteriology out of context. And so they'll take certain passages about God's choice of the nation of Israel, or God's choice of Abraham, or God's choice of Paul, and they will say, look, see how God chose that person? Well, that's how he chooses me, and that's mm. how I'm saved. And so they're so, misapplying scriptures that are really about God's calling to bring the message to the world, and they're applying it to their own individual you know, soteriology of saying, in the same way, for example, that Paul was chosen, I too was chosen which is just a misapplication of the text. It's misapplying a, a, a meaning of the text to, to your own doctrinal systematic, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. All right, Leighton, I need to take a break. And I'm, I'm multitasking right now. I'm, I'm hosting a show, and I'm taking notes really fast. So that's what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, and I have a feeling a lot of my listeners are doing that too. Uh, all right, this is so interesting. Dr. Leighton Flowers is my guest. We're in uh, the words of Jesus, and we're in Matthew 22. I bet there's a question or two coming my direction. You can always text it over to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back with Dr. Flowers in just a minute. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. All right, I've got some good news. I took some really good notes uh, during that first segment, and the bad news is I can't read my handwriting, so... <laughs> I'm kind of at a disadvantage. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Leighton Flowers, and the first uh, three out of four choices, uh, the first choice is the choice of the nation, Israel, and the third one is who would carry the message. And Leighton, what was the second one? Uh, yeah, the the messengers you mentioned, and then to whom the message would be sent, yes, first to the, the Jew messengers. and then to the Gentile. Right. So okay, the, awesome. the recipients of that message, I guess, would be the third one. And and what's interesting, Bill, is that if you'll notice, all three of those choices have to do with the many who are invited portion mm -hmm. of the kind of the moral of the story. The many are invited. All of them have to do that. But notice that every one of the choices is not based upon the worth or the morality of the one who's chosen. True. So in other words, the nation of Israel isn't chosen because they're worthy or because they're great or because they deserve it better than some other nation. Uh, so they're, they're, it's not chosen conditioned upon their good or, or bad deeds. The yeah, same is true I mean, of the messengers. Uh, the messengers are chosen, you know, regard, irregardless of the fact that they are good or bad, because we know a lot of the messengers that were chosen, the, some of the prophets, uh, you know, Peter and David and others had some, you know, pretty bad moral failings. And so yeah. they're not chosen based upon how good or great they are either. And then, of course, the last one, you know, the choice of the, the message, who the message will be sent to, the recipients. He even says, send this to the good and the bad alike, proving 
that it's not no none of those choices so far have anything to do with the worth or the value of the person chosen, which is really important because that's kind of a theme of the entire uh, parable, if that makes sense. Makes a ton of sense. You think of some of the messengers like Jonah. I mean, he was just basically not a good guy. Absolutely. And Jonah is a really good example of this because Jonah was chosen to go to Nineveh, but he didn't want to. So his free will was to run. So he, he yeah. tries to turn and, and, and head to Tarsus. And of course, everybody who knows the story, you know, the storm uh, takes place. He's thrown over and he's he's swallowed by a big fish. In other words, what what does God do? God uses means to convince mm-hmm. the will of Jonah, uh, his chosen servant, to go to Nineveh. Um, and so this is a choice of God, of a servant, to take his message where he wants it to go. And God has at his disposal ways to get people to do what he wants them to do, what he's chosen for them to do, even sometimes when they don't want to. Um, but that doesn't prove <laughs> right. yeah, that doesn't prove that, that God has selected certain Ninevites and is going to somehow use some inward, irresistible grace to cause them to believe Jonah's message. But that's exactly the way some people, some very popular theologians these days, kind of interpret that narrative. They say, well, look how Paul was called. Look how Jonah was called. They were convinced to do what God had elected them to do. And therefore, they apply that to a Calvinistic soteriology to say, well, in the same way, we are elected and therefore caused by God to believe the message. And that's just what, what uh, you know. Uh, debate strategists call uh, a, a debate fallacy called a non sequitur. It doesn't follow. It doesn't follow to say that because God chose his messengers and uses means like a blinding light or a big fish to convince them to go where he's elected them to go, therefore he has elected people to believe that message and is somehow, some, somehow going to use some kind of irresistible inward change to make them believe that message. That's just never taught in the pages of scripture, which is one of the ways that this doctrine of election has been misapplied over the years. And mm-hmm. really it brings us to that that final choice, which is really the, the only one that really has to do with soteriology. The few who are chosen, the few who are elect, are the ones that are permitted to enter into the banquet. And so we think this, of course, is reflected upon salvation, that those who get to enter into the kingdom of God, enter into the banquet, who are these people? Well, these are people who are not good morally necessarily, because remember, the invitation went to the good and the bad alike. So you've got people of all different moral character in the banquet hall now. But the, the what, what's the distinguishing factor? What's the one reason that they are called the elect? Well, because they came in response to the invitation, clothed in the righteousness of Christ through faith, the proper wedding garments. And so there's not the condition of morality, but there is a condition. Because a lot of times Calvinists will talk about unconditional election. And what they're really focusing upon is, well, it's unconditioned upon the goodness or your badness, your morality. And we would say, well, amen, you're right. Because remember, the invitation went to the good and the bad, uh, the immoral people. So it isn't based upon their morality. But what Calvinists wrongly do is they think, well, believing in Jesus, that's a moral thing that you're doing. And therefore, unconditional election is really about God's – God doesn't even condition election upon your faith in Christ. But that's not what the parable teaches. The parable clearly does say that it's those who come in response to the invitation with the proper wedding garments. That is a condition to enter into the kingdom. The thing is, is that believing in Jesus, or in other words, trusting in the morality or the righteousness of someone else, doesn't make you righteous. 
Um, it, it would be like saying, you know, I can't do this, so therefore I'm going to trust in someone else's good deeds. That doesn't make my good deeds automatically just go away or my bad deeds go away. I need the atoning work of Christ. I need his righteousness to cover me. I need to be clothed in his garments. And that's what's necessary for someone to be saved. But what's our responsibility? Well, we have to come in response to the invitation. We have to have faith in Christ, meaning we have to clothe ourselves in his righteousness through faith. Um, and so that is the condition for entering into the wedding banquet. So it's not based upon your own morality or your own goodness that you're granted entrance, but it is based upon something. And what is that something? The righteousness of Christ in whom you trust. And we are called to trust in him, to put our faith in him. And thus, by grace, he clothes us in the righteousness of his son. He covers us with the blood of Jesus. And therefore, we're permitted to enter in. And so that's what the whole basis of this story is. Many are invited, but few are elect. And who are the ones who are elect? It's not the ones who are more moral. It's not the ones who are from the right nation of the, the tribe of, of Judah. It's not ones that are the, from the, the you know seed of Abraham. It's the, those who put their faith in Christ Jesus who are the elect of God. And so this is a what's referred to oftentimes as the corporate view of election, that we individually are elect only insofar as we're connected to the elect one who is Christ. He is the elect one. He's the eternally existent one. Um, I didn't exist before time began. He did. And so when, when we talk about election in eternity past, we're talking about one who existed in eternity past, and that is Christ. And so we're only elect individually as, as insofar as we are connected to the elect one. And so we're born under Adam, under the headship of Adam, but we're elect once we put our faith in Christ. And once you believe, then you're marked in him, as Ephesians 1.13 says. And so you're responsible to get into Christ through faith, to be clothed in the right wedding garments. And so that that's really the moral of the story and what Jesus, I believe, is teaching about the doctrine of election here in Matthew chapter 22. Mm-hmm. So when you say you're responsible, in other words, you have to place your faith in Christ as your Savior. Correct. And that's connoted in the word responsible. It means you're able to respond. Uh, mm-hmm. You're responding to the words of Christ. In John chapter 12, Jesus teaches that he says, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And he mm-hmm. says, the, the, the thing that will judge you on the final day, Jesus says, are the very words that I've spoken to you. In other words, you're not going to be judged based upon whether you're born under Adam. You're not going to be judged based upon how many sins you commit compared to somebody else. What are you going to be judged by? What do you do with the words of Jesus? How Mm -hmm. do you handle the gospel? Uh, Paul said, and I think it's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where he says, they perish because they refuse to love the truth so as to be saved. So they're not perishing because God refuses them or because, you know, that Jesus didn't die for them, as Mm -hmm. some systematic theologians would say. No, they they perish because they refused the words of Christ. They refused the atoning sacrifice. They refused the provision that was was made for them. And that's that's really important to understand. Leighton, we'll pick this up after the break. Dr. Leighton Flowers is my guest. You can learn more about him at Soteriology 101. If you have a question, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Show with Bill Arno, drive time, drive time. 
let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. I am talking to Dr. Leighton Flowers today. He was named the Director of Evangelism and Apologetics for Texas Baptists in 2018. For uh, 13 years, though, he also served as the Director of Youth Evangelism for Texas Baptists. So he loves kids, and that's a big deal in my book. We're talking today about Matthew 22, the words of Jesus. We're learning a lot from that wonderful parable in Matthew 22. If you have your Bibles open, it is the first 14 uh, verses. And Leighton, I want to just revisit this one verse. It says uh, in verse 9, So go to the main roads and invite whomever you find there to the banquet. So the slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all whom they found. Say more about that. This is, a, I think, a reflection upon the universality of the gospel's call to all people, to all nations. Uh, we're not to be uh, discriminate on who gets the gospel. We, we go out and we preach it to every single person. And so the, the mentality sometimes uh, is, you know, only certain people deserve to be saved, especially, you know, in these days. The Jewish people kind of had a pride about themselves, thinking, you know, the barbarian Gentiles, they aren't deserving of salvation because they're not of Israel and they haven't been following the the, the cleansing laws like we have. And so this, this parable is really opening up the truth of the gospel to be for all people, uh, regardless of their nationality, regardless of how, uh, where they've come from and what they've done throughout their lives. And so uh, the moral of the story really is coming down to, you know, if somebody were to ask you, you know, Leighton, do you believe in unconditional election? And I said, well, I can say, well, you know what? I believe it, it is not conditioned upon your own righteousness, but it is conditioned upon the righteousness of the one in whom you trust. And you're responsible to where you put your trust. If you put your trust in Confucius or in Muhammad or in some other world religion, then it's not going to help you because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And so your responsibility is to put your trust in the one whom God has provided as the means for our atonement. I love the verse uh, that I memorized many, many years ago, Leighton, and it might have been part of a great motivation I've always felt in my heart, which is Mark 16, 15, and Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Absolutely. Yeah, John three sixteen. you know, the, the whosoever wills of Scripture uh, are, are plenty. God holding out his hands all day long, longing together. Uh, he does not desire anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance, Re, you know, repent and live. You know, Ezekiel 18 says uh, this is a theme throughout the scriptures where God expresses his loving desire, not only for the nation of Israel, but for the nation of Israel to carry his promise to all the nations and to make his good news, the gospel known to all nations so that all may respond and be saved. Mm-hmm. Leighton, can I jump to a question here? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Um, how does somebody's view of election impact how they live out their faith, or does it? I think it can. Um, you know, how you believe about salvation and how salvation works can affect the way you do evangelism, for example. If you believe that God has elected a certain pre-selected number of people that he's going to save irresistibly and some, through some kind of irresistible means, then uh, it could, uh, it doesn't always, but it could lead you to become passive 
in your evangelistic efforts because you think to yourself, well, you know, God's going to save them regardless of how involved I am because he's elected them. And so if he's elected them, then I don't have to be as uh, urgent about my quest to make sure more people know because God's going to get it taken care of regardless of how faithful I am. Now, many good Calvinists like, you know, John Piper, for example, or John MacArthur, they're out there saying, let's spread the word. And, I, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that Calvinists sometimes maybe, it may seem inconsistent to some of us, but I, I'm thankful that most of the, the well-known Calvinists in our world today are still saying, we, we need to be out there preaching the good news. We need to be telling everybody because we don't know who the elect are on that systematic. And so I'm, I'm thankful for that. But what I worry about is the next generation or the, the even the next generation of those who hold to this worldview because history shows us that this tendency is to become more hyper in one's Calvinism, where you become less and less evangelistic because you become more consistent with the system and less consistent with the scriptural uh, mandate to, and urgency to get out there and, and persuade like Paul does in, in Acts 28, where he says he spent all day long trying to persuade them of who Jesus was. Um, the, the word persuasion, in fact, is used two, almost three times more often than the word uh, predestination, and yet gets a, a fraction of the the ink spilled by theologians because many people would rather talk about the more esoteric and you know uh, strange concepts of what you know predestination means, and and a little is talked about with regard to persuasion and apologetics and making good sound arguments for the faith and helping people to overcome the the hurdles that may keep them from believing in Jesus. Um, I think we as evangelists as Christians need to be about doing exactly what we see the Apostle Paul and the other apostles doing, trying to persuade, trying to convince others of the truthfulness of what we believe about Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And I go to Romans ten seventeen, Leighton. Uh, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Amen. Yes. And that, and so faith is uh, your your response, it's, and it's your responsibility. And so if you suppress the truth and unrighteousness, that's your fault. I don't think you do that because you were just born that way and you couldn't help it. I don't think you, you suppress the truth because God didn't love you or didn't want you or because the revelation isn't sufficiently believable or any of those kinds of things. Um, if you suppress the truth, you're the only one to blame for that because the truth has made been made abundantly clear according to Romans 1 and 2. And so you're, you're held responsible for that truth. And when you see and hear that truth and you don't suppress it, but you receive it, you're convinced by it, um, then uh, you will be set free. The truth will set you free. And that's when you begin to see even more about who God is and what God can do for your life. When you don't push down the truth or explain away the truth, but instead accept the truth, then the Bible says that he will grant you more. He will bring more light, more revelation to those who are faithful with a little. And so don't suppress the truth. Don't push down what your conscience is telling you is right. And when you really look at the scriptures and when you really be, uh, hear the gospel, I think deep down in, in the conscience of every man, uh, a gap is filled. That hole, as C.S. Lewis uh, talks about, is filled when we hear the gospel. And it's only those who choose to suppress the truth and, and try to explain it away that don't truly begin to experience the peace that God brings and the, the righteousness that can come through our relationship with Jesus Christ. We are in our Red Word series with Dr. Leighton Flowers, and we're talking about Matthew 22 today, the parable of the marriage feast. 
Now, Leighton, I have to admit, some of this gets a little bit uh, difficult when I look at this wedding feast. The oxen and fattened calf have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their, went their separate ways. That sounds like a pretty clear picture of the world today. Yes. And I mean, Israel is reflective of that because Israel at that time, remember, they had they'd become uh, in some ways uh, hardened and uh, calloused against the things of God because it become commonplace to them. Um, the, the word commonplace or the, you know, the term complacent comes from the concept of commonplace. And so when the, the words of God have become commonplace to you like they were for the nation of Israel, then sometimes the, the world can become complacent. And in the United States, especially in the Bible Belt where I live, you know, the, the Bible is very commonplace. You know, the, the church is on every corner. And sometimes people who are surrounded by the things of God can can become complacent about the words of God. And they can uh, begin to uh, eventually pay no attention and go off uh, getting distracted by their businesses um, and and uh, basically pushing away anything that has to do with the Word of God because it has become something that's just mundane to them. And that, that is a dangerous place to be. And it's it's not uncommon, though, because we see that cycle with the nation of Israel over and over and over again where they fall into a cycle of apostasy and, and sinning, and, and God calls a prophet to come and warn them. And then uh, oftentimes judgment would come upon them, and then the nation would begin to turn, and you would see a, a surge of repentance turning back to the Lord. And then years later, once again, the cycle would start all over again. And uh, we all tend to fall into that cycle of apostasy, so to speak, to, to continue to try things our own way and uh, go our own direction without God. And we always learn real quickly what happens when we try to go out into the far country like the prodigal and live life without him. Mm-hmm. All right, Leighton, let's uh, go back into the passage where it picks up in verse 5 and says, um, the rest seized his slaves and treated them abusively and then killed them. Now the king was angry and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. How do we understand that? Well, again, it is a parable. And so uh, parables are meant to uh, sometimes use even hyperbole and strong language to catch the Mm -hmm. attention of the audience. And so this is showing, I think, the wrath of God upon those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, just like the weeping and the gnashing of teeth that it mentions uh, the person who shows up without wedding garments. You might think to yourself, well, that's kind of cruel. You know, the guy just didn't show up with the right clothes on. So you throw him out right. with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Seems yeah. a little bit harsh, um, but he's trying to make a point. He's, he's making a point about an eternal uh, destiny and and uh, rejecting the very words of God and leaving yourself under the wrath that you deserve for your own sins and your rejection of God is serious. And so I think he wants his audience to recognize the seriousness of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and avoiding the invitation, uh, because the invitation is your your lifeline to uh, salvation, and therefore you, you should not neglect it. You know, I wonder how many listeners if if nine out of ten would say that i always thought that poor guy didn't have the right clothes on be nice to him don't kick him out don't tie him up bound his hands and throw him out cut him some slack you know i i wonder if most people have interpreted that passage that way 
Yeah, and that's that's the the downside sometimes of parabolic language. And sure. we could talk about the parables of Jesus and the purposes of Jesus using parables out of Mark chapter 4 and Matthew 13, where he explains why he uses uh, harsh language sometimes and difficult riddles uh, when when speaking especially to the Jewish people of that day. But, um, but I, I think when you look at the whole counsel of God's word, you see how patient God actually is with the nation of Israel, holding out his hands to them all day long, longing to gather them like a mother hen gathers her chicks under the wings, but they were not willing. Uh, and so many other passages where he, he literally is begging and beseeching them to come so as to be saved. Um, th- this is the kind of long-suffering Savior we have, is that he's patient toward you, not wanting any to perish, as Second Peter 3, 9 teaches. And so though parables sometimes can be a very, uh, you know, kind of abrupt kind of a story uh, like this one. Um, you've got to take it in, in uh, with with the whole counsel of God's word and understanding uh, the way in which God teaches his character and his patience towards people, despite the fact that wrath is to come for those who refuse his gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Leighton Flowers is my guest. Leighton, one of the real fastballs in this parable is, like we talked about before, verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen and i'm understanding that those who respond to the call can be part of the banquet and their acceptance of the invitation shows that they are chosen by god does that sound fair i I think so in fact they are chosen because they respond to the invitation in faith Uh, and so their election is based upon their willingness to come in response to the invitation and so the, the idea that we are elect um, arbitrarily or unilaterally before we're even created, which is the typical way in which Calvinists teach it, um, I think does an injustice to these kinds of texts. Um, now, I understand, especially if you were to study something like Ephesians chapter 1, how some people come to that conclusion. When I was a Calvinist, mm-hmm. Ephesians chapter 1 is what convinced me that God had made this unilateral choice before the foundation of the world to, to choose some people and not others. But I, I, I would just simply go back maybe even to the previous podcast uh, where we've talked about Ephesians chapter one and many of the podcasts that I put out on my own channel to walk through what Paul is actually discussing with regard to his choice of the faithful in Christ Jesus. He's talking about God's choose choice of the faithful in Christ to be made holy and blameless, that it, that's been God's plan from the very beginning that whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, from the very beginning, he has chosen that whoever is in Christ through faith will be made holy and blameless. So you'll notice the passage never says he's chosen certain people to become believers. It only says what he has chosen for believers to become. And mm. that, that's really important to understand that the differing views of predestination from the, the various th- theological perspectives. Oh, very interesting. Dr. Leighton Flowers is my guest. We're going to continue our discussion on Matthew 22, the words of Jesus. Uh, we're going to take a break. If you have a question or comment, the text line is open just for you, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. 
Been a great discussion today with Dr. Leighton Flowers. We're in Matthew 22, and we're just chatting about the verse 14 that says, For many are called, but few are chosen. And the word chosen, Leighton, is that is that just an, another alternative expression for Jesus' true disciples? Yeah, I mean, the word chosen, you know, it has a lot of theological baggage now, especially whenever the word elect is used. And sometimes mm-hmm. that becomes kind of confusing because somebody hears the word elect, they automatically think of their own theological baggage attached to that word. And so they think it's supporting their particular doctrine of election. But the word election just means choice. And God makes many choices throughout salvific history. And his choice of the nation, his choice of, of messengers carrying the message of, of the gospel, uh, his choice of the prophets in the Old Testament, his apostles in the New Testament, his choice to, to send it to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. All of these are elections or choices of God, none of which have anything to do with individuals being chosen you know, irresistibly to be saved, you know, before they're ever born or something of that nature. And so you've got to be really careful not just to see the word elect or choice in Scripture and automatically just assume that it's talking about the the Calvinistic doctrine of election, because uh, many times it's not even talking about soteriology at all. And sometimes it's actually talking about an election or a choice to service, that God has chosen some to be apostles and some to be prophets. Uh, some he's chosen some to be kings, uh, some to be messengers to this nation or that nation, and so you have to understand the context in order to really rightly interpret a passage. Mm-hmm. Leighton, uh, because you do training in evangelism and apologetics, a question that came in from a listener is asking: When you're evangelizing to the lost, do you also need to make them aware? that they are currently not on their way to heaven? I think, you know, it depends on the person you're talking to and the context of of the the, the discussions. I, I remember one of my pastors used to say, sometimes it's harder to get somebody lost than it is to get them saved. And what he was meaning by that is it's it's sometimes more difficult to help people to realize their condition, their lost condition, because you're you're not going to be you know concerned about salvation if you don't know you need salvation, and so sometimes you know the the process of evangelism. If you listen to the Way of the Master by Ray Comfort and some of these other groups that do really good evangelism training, they will take you through how you present the law as a, a schoolmaster teacher teaching people. Everybody has has lied at some point. Everybody's cheated in some way. Everybody has messed up in some way. And, and here's what that does. Here's how it separates us from our creator who is holy and righteous and good. And so helping people to, to realize their, their condition and their need is, is vital. And so I, in some ways, yes, you need to help them to understand that if, if not for Christ, they are going to spend eternity separated from him. And the Bible uh, does talk about a place called hell, and it's obviously not a place any of us want to go. And mm-hmm. so, I, I don't necessarily want to get into a debate with somebody of what hell's like or, you know, all the different debates about, you know, angels and demons and things that can get distracting, but really just more focus upon the individual's responsibility in light of what the scriptures say with regard to our accountability before God as as ones who have missed the mark and have failed. Mm-hmm. Leighton, the many are called, few are chosen. Did the religious leadership of Israel lose their very privileged position because they rejected Jesus's invitation. 
the, the, those who reject Christ uh, obviously did, and that's and that's exactly what Romans nine through eleven is getting into. What Paul is talking about the the Israelites, generally speaking, have tried to pursue righteousness through works, and they have not attained it. But the Gentiles, again, generally speaking, they are attaining it because they're pursuing it through faith in Christ instead of by works. And so the whole theme of Romans 9 through 11 is kind of this concept and idea of the the nation of Israel being hardened and calloused in their rebellion, which is, by the way, one of the reasons that I think Jesus in his time here on earth spoke in parables. Mark chapter 4 actually says he only spoke to them in parables. Um, lest they see, hear, understand, and turn, because what Jesus is accomplishing through the Israelites of his day who are self-righteous, they're the old wineskin that can't take the new wine, he's accomplishing his purpose of redemption through these hardened and calloused and rebellious people so as to engraft the nations of the world, the Gentiles. And and so when, when you understand that that's his a strategy here in human history to bring about redemption for the world. You understand the reason he's using parabolic language and the reason uh, he's only revealing himself to to some and not to the rest have to do with his plan of redemption uh, to to get to Calvary in order uh, to provide atonement for the sins of the world. Mm-hmm. Leighton, when I look at Verse 9, it says, So go to the main roads and invite whomever you find there to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all whom they found. Do we tie that at all to John uh, 6.44, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him? I I would, um, because... Those dots were connecting there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the, and also John 12, 32, that once I'm raised up, I Jesus speaking, I will draw all men to myself. Well, notice he's not drawing all men to himself uh, in John 12. Uh, if you look down in verse 39, he even says, for this reason, they, speaking of Israel, cannot believe because I have hardened their hearts. I've calloused them. I'm speaking to them in parabolic language. Even as, even as he's speaking there in John 4, he's saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're grumbling. They don't get it. They think he's talking mm-hmm. about cannibalism. And they're all getting mad and upset, and they're leaving. Yeah. Um, he's preparing them for the cross in some ways. And so only the 12 actually remain. Um, and they probably wouldn't have stuck around either had it not been for all the miracles they had seen. He, they'd seen him, you know, calm the storm and heal the blind. And so they they knew, you know, the, the explanation was coming because, as he says in Mark 4, you know, he, he, he speaks to everyone else in parables, but to them, he brings them aside and explains to them what he means because they are the ones he's entrusting with this truth for this time. But once he's lifted up, in other words, once the resurrection happens, what's the first thing he does? He commissions the gospel to go into all the world. And those are the means that God draws all men to himself by sending the Holy Spirit to bring conviction to the world. He sends the gospel to go to be spread through all the nations of the world. That's why in, at Pentecost, when they speak in tongues, they're speaking in all the languages so every single person present can understand the words. And so that was a miracle for a purpose, to help spread this good news to all nations of the world. That doesn't happen until after the resurrection. So Christ is not going to draw everybody, you know, 3,000 or plus you know, followers as a rabbi prior to the cross because they never would have crucified a, a rabbi with that many followers. He instead mm-hmm. <laughs> is keeping them at a distance. He's using parabolic language. He's he's keeping them hardened in their already self-righteous uh, and calloused ways so as to accomplish redemption through them. 
with the hopes, according to Paul, that they would be grafted back in, that they would leave their unbelief and be grafted back in, as he says in Romans chapter 11. So it's not, it's not, he's not hardening them for the purpose of condemning them for eternity. He's hardening them temporarily to bring about redemption through them with the hopes that they too will see the error of their ways, possibly even be provoked to envy when they see the Gentiles being saved and, and that they will turn from their, their ways and be grafted back in. That's Paul's hope, which you'd have to assume if it's Paul's hope, it's the hope of God who is inspiring him. And, uh, yep. and so that's what we believe, you know, from our perspective as a, as a, what I call a provisionist, I believe that God has provided for all people and that includes the Jews as well as the Gentiles, and thus anyone can be saved. Mm-hmm. Leighton, thank you so much for spending time with us today. This has been excellent uh, food for thought, and I can't wait to listen to it a second time and try to figure out if I can read my own handwriting. So I appreciate you coming on the show. <laughs> it's been my honor. Yeah. Dr. Leighton Flowers has been my guest. You can learn more about him at Soteriology101.com. That's soteriology one oh one. Com. He's got a lot of videos up there and things you can uh, find out about him. And he's got some amazing uh, videos for you to, to, to watch. So that's our show for the day. I want to thank Dr. Glenn Pickering for the first hour and Dr. Leighton Flowers for this hour. I want to conclude with this right out of Philippians. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.